today and take the Word of God and turn to Titus. Titus chapter 1. And I know they're doing the puppet show down there and you might hear some, some laughing and screaming and other things, so don't worry. Everything's fine. Um, they're going to be right below us. And so they gave us a fair warning and that's what I'm doing right now. I'm letting you know that I told them it was okay. And I said, just make sure the doors are shut because that's the biggest thing. Um, because if the doors are open, that's when we hear them. But uh, there's a foot of concrete between here and there, so hopefully that'll mitigate some of the noise. Titus chapter 1, and let's just read verse 5 to begin with today. And um, we may not get to the other verses. Our sermon, uh, your notes there say verses 5 through 9. Um, but let's just start with verse 5 today. For the reading of God's word, if you would, let's stand together. And since I made you stand, let's just read through verse 9, okay? Now that I got Sister Kathy standing, make her stand longer. But let's just read through verse 9 just to give us a little better context. All right, let's read out loud together. Titus 1, 5 through 9. For this cause left I thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting, and ordain elders in every city, as I had appointed thee. If any be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of riot or unruly. For a bishop must be blameless, as the steward of God, not self-willed, not soon angry, not given to wine, no striker, not given to filthy lucre, but a lover of hospitality, a lover of good men, sober, just, holy, temperate holding fast the faithful words as he hath been taught, that he may be able to, by sound doctrine, both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. Let's pray. Father, I pray your blessing upon your word. Thank you for the opportunity to preach this morning. I thank you for the good people of this church and our visitors, our guests, our friends. Lord, I do pray that you would help everyone here to be encouraged and uh, to realize that this day is important. Every day that we live is important and should be lived on purpose. And I do pray that you would help us to uh, bring you glory as we say, this is the day that the Lord hath made and help us to rejoice and be glad in it. I do pray that you would uh, just give us a wonderful time together in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. As you know, Crete was an island in the Mediterranean Sea with many cities. And um, William Barclay quotes Homer as calling the islands Crete of the hundred cities. And uh, some of you have been to an island. Some of you have never been to a, a large island. I think of Puerto Rico. But a, uh, a larger island even that I've been to is Cuba. And you think about how many cities are in Puerto Rico. And just different places throughout that island. And you think it's an island. How can there be two million people on this island? And, uh, but... A big enough island, you can have multiple little towns and villages and cities, and sometimes people can grow up on one side of the island, and they've never been to the other side. Um, and as big as Puerto Rico is, Cuba is even much bigger, and it seems like it's almost as long as the state of Florida, or wide as long as the state of Florida is. Um, but Crete was uh, a large uh, place with many cities, and no doubt Paul had led people to Christ all over the island, city after city, and had established churches in the cities in which the converts lived. However, he had to continue on in his ministry. 
He was uh, uh, going to other cities, other places that needed the gospel. But he left somebody behind to help that, the, the churches to get grounded spiritually, to establish leadership and order. And this man was named Titus. That's who this book is written to. And um, he points out two critical needs in the church. Two critical needs of churches. Really, these needs exist not in the churches that are on Crete, but also our church and every church. Order and leadership. Order and leadership. These two needs don't exist just in churches. Order and leadership are needful in all three of God's institutions. Do you know what God's first institution was? What did he establish with Adam and Eve? The first two people that God had created, he established a home, right? And uh, there's a husband and a wife. And then there were children. So then they, the husband and wife became mom and dad. And... Uh, and then uh, with the children, they had parents. And so there was a home, a home unit. And uh, uh, he established that institution. And in that institution, there needs to be order and leadership. And God outlines, in the Word of God, he outlines how he wants order in the home and leadership in the home. And uh, when we stray away from God's design, then we have problems, don't we? Uh, the other institution that God started, and uh, the other... Uh, form of uh, 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 or other institution is government, right? And in government, God has outlined order and leadership in his word. Uh, here we have the church, and he wants order in the church, amen? And uh, he wants leadership. And uh, Titus 1.5, Paul says here, for this cause left I thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting. Um, he says, first of all, to set things in order. The churches on the island needed order and leadership, and that word order, set in order, in the English Bible is not found anywhere else in the New Testament. It simply means to arrange and in a straight fashion. To arrange in a straight fashion. He wanted them to set in order. The things, and then he says, are the things that are wanting. The Greek uh, word there means the things that were left unfinished. So Paul left Titus there uh, to tie up the loose ends. Paul had established the churches. Uh, he was there uh, at a time where he could not stay, and so he left. And they were young and strung struggling, these churches were. And uh, this was different than anything Paul had done in the past. He normally stayed there until they were established. But uh, he couldn't do that in this case. Uh, being a center for the sea trade in the Roman Empire, as I've mentioned before about the island of Crete, uh, it was particularly important for the Cretan churches to be well organized and uh, with godly leadership to keep them from doctrinal error. Because if you think about that, these were very uh, pagan cities, and as, as well as they were well connected, they were connected to other cities in the region uh, around the Roman Empire. The, it was a hub for the Mediterranean Sea, and so they needed some strong leadership in these churches. Because in these churches, there was going to be a constant fight and struggle for purity. 
and for doctrinal soundness. They were fighting apostasy on a daily basis. And so in order to do that, you have to have strong leaders that are willing to stick their neck out and willing to confront doctrinal error. And so that's why Paul gives some instructions here. He says, uh, verse number five, I left you there, I left thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting, and ordain leaders or elders in every city, as I appointed thee. Um, We see letter B, he left him there to appoint leaders, not to just set things in order, but part of that was to appoint leaders. We uh, see the title here, Elder, in verse number five. Do you see that? Uh, Ordain elders. The title, Pastor, Elder, Bishop, describe the same office in the church. Uh, refers to three aspects of a church leader's work. Elder refers to the church's leader's maturity and responsibility. And the fact that, the, uh, that that person was to set the example in the church. Another word in the New Testament that's used is the word bishop. Bishop refers to the church leader's authority, to the fact that he is to rule the church. The Greek word bishop also translates as oversee or overseer. The terms elder and bishop are used interchangeably. Then we see the word pastor uh, used throughout the New Testament, and that refers to the shepherd of the flock, the shepherd of the sheep. Speaking of his work of teaching and feeding and caring and protecting the sheep. And a church needs an elder, a bishop, and a pastor. A church needs uh, that office to function correctly. A pastor is not just a title. It's a divine calling. And it holds the fabric of the church together uh, through storms through the good times. A faithful pastor is a blessing, and it's an anchor in that church to keep things steady. Uh, A church does not need a building to function. Did you know that? A church does not need live stream to function. A church does not need a youth program or Sunday school. And all of those things are uh, a blessing. There's nothing wrong with them, and in fact, they help the church greatly. Uh, A church does not need a bus ministry. And I'm blessed to see the bus kids that are coming to our church. We saw a few of them singing up here this morning. We heard them singing. Wasn't that a blessing? And uh, a church does not need a bus ministry to function, though. A church does not need a fellowship meal on Sundays. And some of you say, Pastor, don't cut that off, whatever you do. That's the one thing that we don't want you to stop here because that's why we come. Uh, A church does not need an addictions program or a food pantry To function. A church does not have to have a missions program to function. Uh, Now, that's not to say it doesn't need outreach, but a church needs a pastor. You might be saying, well, what about the people? Well, that's what the church is, okay? So if you don't have people, you don't have a church. Now, I've known some pastors that were pastors, and they call themselves pastors, but they had no church, uh, so they weren't really pastoring. But You need people, right? You need a church, but then you need a pastor. If you don't have a pastor, you're going to have a hard time. Some churches who have lost their pastor um, have had a deacon board or public committee, and they can do well uh, for a time. Uh, They can keep things going. But a pastor cannot be replaced by deacons or by a pulpit committee or by pulpit supply long term. Uh, Some churches wait years and they, not on purpose, but they can't find a pastor, and sometimes it takes years to do that, and that church 
struggles during those times. Um, it is one of the things that we can take for granted at times, but when a church does not have a pastor, it is felt by all people. So we see it's an, a necessity, it's important. So we see, first of all, the pastor's qualifications. Uh, verse number six, if you would look at that verse with me. So he gives these qualifications, and by the way, um, these things are important. We don't always consider this until there's a time where we don't, uh, we're looking for somebody. We're looking for a pastor, and I'm not resigning, so don't get worried this morning. It just happens to be where we're at in the text here, okay? So some people, you know, relax. Uh, but if you ever needed to find a pastor, these are the qualifications. Um, these are very important things. Sadly, churches are willing to take a pastor who's not qualified just because they're so desperate to have a pastor. And in one sense, I understand that. I understand, uh, uh, or I, I, I empathize. I've not been without a pastor, but I empathize with that church because it has to be difficult to not have leadership and direction and a, a pastor to feed, a pastor to lead and guide. Um, but at the same time, it would be better to not have a pastor than to have one that is going to be disqualified, or disqualified pastor. So verse number, verse number six, he starts with this right here. Look at it if you would. If any be blameless. Blameless. Now what does that mean? Uh, that means having no just cause for blame. Simply means that the pastor should be above reproach. A, di a dictionary definition of the word reproach uh, means shame, disgrace, or that which brings rebuke or censure upon a person. A pastor needs to be above that, above reproach. Um, it's not to say that a pastor should be perfect, uh, because I certainly am not perfect. Uh, there's no pastor that's perfect. There's no person that's perfect. But that a pastor should be a man against whom no charge of immorality or of holding false doctrine is credibly alleged. Now, people can say all kinds of things, but if there's a credible allegation, that, that means that pastor is not blameless. There's a lot of good men that I know of that once pastored, and they are not blameless anymore. Now, God is using them in a mighty way, and some of them are my friends, but they crossed a line at some point, and they are no longer blameless. Uh, we should all have a good reputation, one that's a above reproach in the church, right? First uh, Peter 2.12 talks about our, our testimony outside of the church even. Do you think it's important to have, for a pastor to have a good testimony, not just in the church, but outside the church, in the community? The pastor is not just the pastor of this church. Your pastor is, a, is to be a pastor in the community and to be uh, a help to all of those that are in the city. And verse Peter 2.12, look at it if you would, please. Having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, 
glorify God in the day of visitation. So we see the pastor needs to be blameless. Uh, verse number six, continue on. Then he says, the husband of one wife. The husband of one wife. Now some people take this verse so literally that they believe that it is a requirement uh, that a pastor be married to be a pastor. Now, that is desirable. And I will say that if a pastor um, is not married, I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, call them to be my pastor. If I was on the pulpit committee, I would say, this person probably should be married. But if there's a man that has lost their wife, and um, you know, that does not disqualify him from being a pastor. That does not uh, uh, make him any less of a pastor. He has an understanding of what it is to be married and to lead a home uh, more than likely. If he has children, that's even better because uh, having children, having that experience only enhances what he can do for that church. Uh, the husband of one wife. Now, by the way, it also does not mean one wife at a time. There, and, and some people have, have, um, have alleged that that's what this means. Um, because, and again, this is where we get into this area of qualified or not qualified to pastor. Um, there are some good men who have been divorced and remarried and are pastoring uh, personally, and we all have opinions, right? Um, but Personally, I do not believe that that would be an ideal situation because that goes back to the blameless aspect. In this day and age, it is hard to find uh, qualified pastors and qualified deacons in the church, but I think we should keep the standard where it should be. Uh, and I don't believe that means one wife at a time. There's no record of the church ever having a problem with polygamy. Uh, we don't find that. Uh, and if this was Paul's intended meaning, he was addressing a problem which up to that time had not been addressed. Uh, histori historians also tell us that it is doubtful that polygamy was uh, rampantly practiced at this time uh, by the Romans and the Greeks. Therefore, Paul, this would have been a warning against a practice that was not uh, an issue uh, in the broad spectrum. It means that the pastor, and this is what I heard years ago, a good way to put this, the pastor is a one-woman man. Uh, when I was in college, our professor kind of got that mixed up, and he said, a one-man a one woman. And we said, no, that's not right, professor. He said, no, I, I didn't mean that. One-woman man means that he, he only has eyes for one woman, okay? And uh, you might be saying, well, you know, I've known a pastor before, and he had been divorced and remarried, and he was a blessing in my life. Well, praise God for that, uh, because there are some uh, people that have been divorced, and they can still be used of God in a mighty way. But I don't believe that the, the calling to pastor should be for that person. The call to preach is not necessarily the same as the call to a church office. A man can preach in many ways. In the highways, in the byways, in the jails, in the nursing homes, in the, uh, in the street corners, from house to house, in the bus ministry. He could be a Sunday school teacher without being a deacon or a pastor. Men who are not qualified to be a pastor or a deacon can still preach the word of God in many ways if they are faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, God, I believe that God strongly uh, is strong against divorce. God hates divorce, but God does not hate divorced people. And we understand that that is uh, very common in our culture and society today. And so uh, as lovingly as we can, 
we want to take a strong stand uh, in the area, in the arena of marriage. Because I think a lot of the issues that we're facing in our culture right now, particularly in 2023, in regards to uh, transgenderism and same-sex marriage, stem from a weak view of marriage for the past century. It can be, it can be, it, it can be traced back to how that the rise in divorce uh, has caused all of these problems that we see today. So we need to take a strong stand on marriage, uh, marriage between one man and one woman for life. One man, one woman for life. Because if we, if we give an example to our children that you can be divorced and remarried and can still do all of these things and be in leadership in a church, then there's not m- as much inhibition against uh, divorce in our churches. That's one way to look at it. But I believe that we need to take a strong stand in this area of marriage. Uh, all God's people said... I hope you agree with that because I believe God is strong on marriage. God is for marriage. Uh, I am not against marriage in any way, shape, or form I, as far as God's way of looking at it. I'm for, uh, for people coming together in holy matrimony and, and establishing a godly home. Uh, but it's not something to be taken lightly. It is not something to rush into. It is not something to just say, well, you know, if it doesn't work out, well, you know, we can straighten that out later. No, I think that needs a lot of prayer. It needs, and it's something that as young people, as, as you consider a marriage partner, you need to consider that person as your partner for life. That means that if your parents, if their godly parents are putting the brakes on and saying, this person is not the person for you, don't say, well, you know, they're just an old fuddy-dud. They don't know what I want. They don't know what I feel. But you know what? They're older than you. They're wiser than you. They've seen some things. They've been through some things. It'd be wise for all of us to listen to those that are older than us. All the old people said, amen. All the young people said, well, praise the Lord. I agree. Uh, and so having, having a godly marriage is very important. Very important. It's getting harder and harder to, to have have the right kind of marriage today. There's so many uh, things against marriage, isn't there? There's so many things against um, being godly in general, but how about being a godly husband or a godly wife or a godly parent or being a godly child for that matter? That gets us to our next point here as he says in verse 6, blameless, the husband of one wife, and then what's the third thing that he says there? Read it with me. Having faithful Children not accused of right or unruly. By faithful, he means that they are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, we need to reach our children before we seek to reach the world. So many times we're focused on reaching Milwaukee with the gospel that we are neglecting our families. Your family is your first ministry. If God has blessed you with children, Prioritize that ministry. Your marriage, your children. If you don't, um, I think it was Adrian Rogers that said something similar to this, but somebody had said, said to him something in regards to marriage, and he said, I can always get another church, but I can't get another family. I can't get another wife. I can't have other children uh, and do it the right way, but I can always go to a different church. Um, it's so important that we 
we prioritize family as our first ministry, not the church. I love the church. I love, I love being the pastor here. I love being your pastor. But if you understand this, take this the right way. Please, please take this the right way. My family comes before you, and it is for your sake that they come before you. It is for their sake and my sake that they come before you, because that is the right progression. Priorities are so important. Too many times we get our priorities out of whack, don't we? Do you start having problems when your priorities are out of place? <laughs> so we gotta put what God says is important, put that first, and always put it first. Don't let other things get in the way. Uh, I believe that the Ten Commandments start the way they do on purpose. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Why? Why was it number one? I believe it was priority to say that the first thing's first, right? God is always number one. Nothing comes before God. And if God so chooses to give you a spouse, nothing comes before that spouse other than God, right? If God so chooses to give you children, nothing comes before those children except for God and your spouse, amen? And if God gives you a ministry, well, praise the Lord, but put that in that priority where it should be. Having faithful children, not accused of riot or unruly, by faithful, that means that they're believers. Bring your children to church, to Christ, to the gospel, uh, understand that they have a free will. Not every child is going to submit. But I'm telling you right now that when you live before them in humility and in sincerity, that that is going to be an, uh, that is an attractive force for the gospel. When we live before people in this world and they try to test us and they, they try to uh, get us to fall and to falter and fail, and they will because they want to see if you really believe what you believe, what you say that you believe. And they're going to try us. But if they find out, and when they find out that you are genuine and you really are who you say you are, you're the same at work as you are at church. You're the same outside of work as you are at work or at church. You're the same at home as you are everywhere else. And when they realize this is a real person with, uh, with a real Christian, and uh, they will be attracted to that. There is something about honesty that attracts people. And part of that is that there's a lack of honesty in our world, isn't there? There's a lack of integrity in our society. And many times it's imitated, People like to look like they have integrity. It's imitated. There's a facade that's put on. We wear a mask at times because we, we know what's right, but many times, but we fail to do what's right. And so we want to keep up appearances, but if people realize that you are who you say you are, you have integrity, that is attractive. And when that is the case in the lives of your children, who know you, by the way, better than anyone else? You know your children know, your children know everything about you. They don't always let on that. Uh, my kids are at the age right now where they point things out. If you know what I mean. They point things out. They let me know. Hey, Dad, you said this, but you are doing that. Isn't it true? I just want to let you, I'm being transparent this morning to let you know I'm not perfect. And my kids know it. And that's scary. 
But what, how, how do we respond to that kind of thing when our children, who know us better than anyone else, how do we respond to them? Do we say, shut up and don't tell me that, you know? Do as I say, not as I do. Uh, no, that is not going to win you any kind of uh, points for integrity. The best thing to do when you fail is to admit that you've made a mis- you failed or sinned, whatever it is. It may not even be to the point of sin, but you, you maybe are just, uh, you're, you're not able to follow through with something. You, you let down uh, somebody, admit that you did something wrong. Admit that you have failed in some way. And don't give an apology. I, I hate when people apologize and they use their apologize and they project that back onto you. Well, I'm sorry if I offended somebody. I'm sorry if you got offended. That is a weak apology. I hate when people do that. Admit when you've done something wrong. Be honest. People want you to be honest. Even, even, if, it, um, even, if, it, even if it is an admission of doing something wrong, people know when you've done wrong, and if you are honest with them, they will accept that. And, they, and you will be a much bigger person in their eyes for having been honest with them. Be honest with God, be honest with yourself, and be honest with others. Be a person of integrity. That will draw your children to the Lord Jesus Christ. When you're teaching your children to just put on a mask and put on a show when they come to church because you don't want them to make you look bad, you are setting them up to be hypocrites. You're setting them up to fail. You're setting them up to eventually turn on you and to, uh, to rebel against you and the Lord. So we see that there's a need to have uh, faithful children, faithful children that love the Lord Jesus Christ. The minister's children are to be above reproach as well. They are not to be loose in morals and conduct or unruly or disorderly. And by the way, it's not easy being a pastor's kid at times. Some people say, well, you're pretty, that's pretty cool. You get to be the pastor's kid. I bet you got to go to a lot of things and do a lot of things and go to a lot of preaching and, and all of that. Well, it's not always easy being scrutinized. And by the way, I was blessed because I grew up in this church. I know, know that this church has treated me well as a pastor's kid because you guys have been um, very supportive of me. There are some churches that will tear the pastor's family apart for whatever reason. Well, I know what it is. It's called sin and pride, but, um, but I've heard of horror stories of where a pastor's wife has been uh, just, just treated horribly by the church. The, the pastor, the pastor's wife, and then the pastor's children, which make an easy target many times. Because if somebody has a beef with the pastor, some people are not brave enough. They're too coward to go and deal with the pastor themselves because they know if they go to the pastor, eh, they're gonna be, they're, the, their sin is going to be exposed. It's hard to, to, to go to the pastor when you're living in sin. Uh, many times uh, we avoid the shepherd, right? We avoid the shepherd when we're not doing what's right. But who do they go after? They go after those who are vulnerable. They go after the pastor's children. And so it's not necessarily easy being a pastor's kid, but I'm telling you right now, I believe that the pastor's children should be, uh, should be above reproach as well. They're not going to be perfect, don't expect the pastor's kids to be perfect. Guess what? Uh, the pastor's kids always have problems, just like 
your kids have problems. Um, and um, usually they're just following the deacon's kids or whoever else that's, you know, in the church. And they're, they're learning all those bad habits and bad behaviors. From No, I'm just kidding. But what I'm saying is that even pastor's children have uh, struggles. And they are growing. They're learning. They're maturing, hopefully. But I believe that children of a minister should not be uh, wild and unruly. Uh, because that says something about the pastor's leadership. If the pastor cannot get his own children under control, how is he supposed to lead a church and keep the church going in the right direction? Uh, somebody gave an excellent description. It was William Barclay. He said, the family of an elder must not be undisciplined. Nothing can be made up for the lack of parental control. The training of children is ultimately in the hands of the parent. Do you know who I blame when our children are out uh, in our community are out stealing cars at 11 and 12 and 13 years of age? I'm not blaming the police. I'm not blaming the government. I'm not blaming the schools. I'm not even blaming the churches, which I believe that overall it is our job to help, right? But ultimately, who does God say is responsible for raising children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? Mom and dad, right? Moms and dads. And it's their fault for all of the children that are doing what they're doing. Uh, this summer, there is a program for, uh, for the children on the streets to, uh, to have curfew, and they're giving tickets to the children as well as to the parents if their kid, kids are out on the streets after a certain hour. And um, a lot of parents are upset about that, but guess what? It is your job as a parent to lead your children. Uh, Oliver B. Green, some of you know that name, but he gives an excellent picture of what the scripture is saying about uh, pastors and their children. He said, what Paul is saying here is that an elder or bishop must have a well-governed family, a family which fully respects him, a family well-trained in, in spiritual matters. His family must be spiritually minded even. They must love the church and the things of God and cooperate with the head of the family in all things. By the way, if you are unkind to the pastor, his family, you are, you are not helping your pastor. You might be thinking, well, that's my point, pastor. I don't want to be nice to him. I'm trying to be unkind to him. But I'm going to tell you that you are going to, uh, you're setting yourself up for, uh, for some real problems. Because God, God is going to deal with you and chastise you for doing those things. But, I'm, but if you do love your pastor, love your pastor's family. Please love your pastor's wife and their children and encourage them. Because there's nothing like coming to a church where people don't like you. And if you feel as a pastor's kid that the people in that church hate you, and don't like you, guess what? It's not going to be joy. There's joy in serving Jesus. It's going to be a lot, uh, a very difficult road to go down. And so keep doing what you're doing. Love your pastor's family. Uh, so the, the pastors, he says, Oliver B. Green, he says that a pastor, if he cannot rule his own house and lead his own family concerning spiritual matters, how can he direct the church? If he were a man who did not have the respect of his family, he could not hope to have the respect of the church. So we see that the pastor has some family qualifications, personal qualifications, and preaching qualifications. I know that we're going to have Lord's Supper in just a minute. I want you to turn there. We're going to have prayer and an invitation, giving you time to 
uh, to ask God for uh, his blessing today and help in your marriage, help in your home. But I'm going to tell you right now that when we go to Lord's Supper in just a minute, 1 Corinthians 11, um, the Bible talks about uh, t- not doing things un- in an unworthy manner, the Lord's Supper table, right? Because this is a place of, that we're supposed to respect the Lord, what he's done for us, remember him, honor him in that way. Sometimes we think, well, I've made some mistakes in my life. Even after being saved, I've done some things. I've, I've had struggles in my life. And so I'm not really worthy to partake in the Lord's table because I'm, I'm, I don't want to do it unworthily. I'm not worthy. The truth is none of us are worthy. None of us are worthy. We're supposed to have a respect for the Lord, but I'm telling you right now, the Lord wants you to get right with him. If you're not right with him, get right with him, and he will restore you to that relation, that right relationship. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that's a promise from God. And so if you've had some struggles in your personal life or even in your marriage, if you've been divorced and remarried, and some have been, but we love all people, and God loves you just as much as the day that uh, you got saved. He loves you uh, the, uh, just as much today as he does that, did then. It has no bearing on your salvation or relationship with the Lord. Um, all people struggle. All people have things that they, in their past that they're not proud of. But Paul said to not live looking backwards. He says, press, I press toward the mark. I'm moving forward. I'm not living in the past. And when Jesus forgives us, when God forgives us, he says that I don't remember.